Who are the real people we consider our sages? Who were they in life? What is the legacy they left us? Join Rabbi Danny Saxton for the next hour as he explores the lives of our Torah giants, the spiritual geniuses who shaped the way we approach Judaism today. That's focus on our sages right now on 101.9 High FM. afternoon and welcome to Soul to Soul. Always wonderful to be with you on a Wednesday afternoon. And now we can say a warm Wednesday afternoon. Spring is here and the beautiful weather has arrived, Baruch Hashem. And we like to talk about sages and about um, the great giants in Jewish history. And we have a modern living sage with us this afternoon. It is a great honor and pleasure to, Rabbi, to welcome Rabbi Shimon Green, who is a uh, Together with me on the show today, Rabbi Green is well known here in South Africa. He has many followers in Johannesburg, in Cape Town. Rabbi Green is the founder of the Birka Satora Yeshiva in Jerusalem, and he's had a great impact on many Jews around the world for many decades, and uh, many in South Africa too have been touched and moved and guided by his sincerity and by his wisdom and by his uh, deep understanding of the Torah and of the role of a Jew in the world. So a very warm welcome, Rabbi Green. Thank you for being with us. Thank you. And uh, I thought maybe we'd start out with Rabbi Green sharing with us some of his experiences. Rabbi Green just mentioned to me that when he was 17 years old, he was living in Baltimore in the United States, that he had a realization and he had an epiphany that he would move to Eretz Israel, move to the land of Israel, and he did so on his own uh, with great courage and lived there for many, many decades. And uh, maybe, Rabbi, you can share with us some of your insights from that journey. Yeah. I'll tell you something interesting. Um, it, this sounds shocking in this modern world, but uh, as a child uh, growing up and, and you know, uh, being, a, being having a Jewish education, and as a matter of fact, receiving each year on Tu B'Shvat, um, uh, a holiday that celebrates the trees each year. I, I, we actually received fruits from Eretz Israel, and yet, yet in my mind, there was no real place that was Eretz Israel that a person could actually go to. It was a place in the Bible, and even though I got the fruits every year, it just never, it never connected. And only when I was finally a teenager did I realize that there was an actual real place of Eretz Israel that a person could go to. And one day when I was, uh, I think I was 15 years old, and my life was fine. I really didn't have any, any, no serious problem that would bother anybody, other than what bothers every kid, you know, or teenager. And I came home, and I, there was no one home, and I stood in the middle of the room, and I began not to cry, but to sob. My whole body was shaking, and I was, I was crying from the deepest place I'd ever cried in my life. And to tell you the truth, had you asked, I didn't know why I was crying. And only sometime later, uh, both of my parents came home, and they asked me why I was crying. I said, and I don't know where this came from. I said, I'm crying because I need to go to Eretz Israel. I said, I have to, I have to go, to, I have to go to Israel. And uh, so they laughed. They said, Well, finish school first. <laughs> so I said, Okay. And I did finish, and I had the privilege of uh, had the privilege of going to Eretz Israel. And the truth is that I really had no idea what was really in Eretz Israel. I didn't know if the Turks were still there or the British. I didn't know if they had soap 
I didn't really, I didn't really know what was what what, what was going on, and it was to my benefit actually, uh, because I was in this in these in certain respects and certain very very uh, uh, happy uh, of uh, respect. I was ignorant uh, of modern Jewish history, and that allowed me to one to escape a certain type of negative socialization, both in the United States and later when I came to Israel, because I fell through the cracks. I, I can only tell you this in hindsight, but I didn't realize it at the moment, you know. But it was a very, a very good thing. And to tell you the truth, you know, my 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 brother actually, my brother had did go at the same time, but lived in a different place. And when we met in Eretz Yisrael, we just began to cry from the sheer joy of uh, sheer joy of uh, of being in Eretz Yisrael. I had three jobs when I went to Eretz Yisrael. I worked on a farm, uh, and I worked really just for a room and board. And I had a stipend. I think I, I got a what was then a lira sixty six. That was enough for a pack of cigarettes and a bar of chocolate. I used to get every day. And I worked on the farm all day from early in the morning, uh, and then late in the afternoon, I would travel to a development town. I had a job. We actually got, you know, in addition to room and board, I got, I got a little money in my pocket. I used to teach English uh, to uh, children about 12 years old uh, in an after-school program. And then I had a third job. I used to work in a in an egg hatchery. I don't know if you know what egg hatchery is. That's where they hatch eggs, obviously, but it's done scientifically these days. You know, they have a temperature control, and the eggs actually hatch twice a week when they want them to. Now, the egg hatchery is a, is a frightful uh, place, you know, a lot of eggs are bad. They explode. They the smell is is horrendous, you know. But anyway, so twice a week when they would hatch the eggs, the place looked like a you know a disaster area, you know, and uh, it had to be clean. So twice a week, Monday night and Thursday nights, I used to work all night long cleaning the uh, egg hatchery with another uh, fellow who was my boss actually. Now, for me, he was an old guy. He was probably twenty six years old, <laughs> but uh, he was the old he was the old man, and uh, so I worked very very hard. And it was very good. A lot of wonderful things happened to me there because I worked with the most of the people I worked with were uh, were Sfaradim, uh who I you know growing up in America in an Ashkenazi community, so I never really had contact with Sfaradim or Sephardic culture, and they taught me a tremendous amount. Um, first and foremost, what it means to receive uh, a guest and what, what we call Hachnasas uh to treat people kindly and with great respect. Uh, when they visit your home. My boss, like I told you, was probably about 26 years old. So each afternoon, uh, we, I would come home from the farm, we would ride the bus together, and uh, he would take me to his house to have coffee, you know, before we'd go to uh, to teach these children. And uh, one afternoon, we got back, and the door was locked, but his wife was on the other side of the, of the door, the other side of the glass, and he's knocking on the door, and she's yelling then through the glass. She said, I'm sorry, you cannot come in here. How do you bring a person home? You don't have, she said, you don't have biscuit, you don't have cookies? How can you, how do you bring a person? You may not come in this house. I will not open this door till you go out to the grocery and you buy biscuit, Tim. You buy cookies. You can't come home. And it, it was funny, but it was true. And he had, he was, she would let us in. And only if you let us in that you would come in. You know, the, 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 the paramount importance of, 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 uh, of receiving a guest. And I'll tell you one day, I had a incredible relationship with the children, but one day, um, I, I was actually hoping, you know, get a little money. I love music. So I was trying to get a record player, which was a very, was a great luxury item in those days. In any case, but you know, word got out in the development town that I was, <laughs> ironically, that I must have been some kind of very successful person because I was, you know, I was going to get a record player and all these things. It was nothing, you know, but anyway, so one day I actually went out and I, I actually, I got the record player on promissory notes. I signed the, I signed notes, you know, against my salaries. 
whatever salary it was, wasn't much much money. But I, I got it, and my arms were full with this record player. And one of my students said, my father wants to speak with you. So I came to her house with, with my arms fully, the record player between my, my arms and my chin. And I come in and it looks like, it looks like a, like a birthday party or something. They got the, I don't know, I got food and the lights. I don't, I don't know what's going on. The room is full. And suddenly the father claps his hands twice like they do in the Middle East, just like this. And the room empties and there's nobody there except for me and the father. He says, okay. He says, you saw my daughter. He met his older daughter. I didn't see her. He said, you're a nice guy. She's a nice girl. He said, I will give you a house in Yushalayim, a house in Jerusalem, and half a factory. What do you say? And I said, I was 17. I said, uh, 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 and I got up and I, I just, I did, I never answered him. And I, I, I picked myself up holding my new record player and I walked out and I walked right into a telephone pole. And for years, all my brother and all my friends, everybody knew where the crack in the, the record player came from, you know, from when I walked out. But those same kids, one day, an incredible thing happened because the, uh, one of the children's father passed away. Uh, and, uh, oh, most of this community was North African, uh, Jews. And, um, I come, I, I was constantly to come to the school to teach, but there was nobody going to be there. There was a funeral. Right. We're going to continue with that story in a moment. We're just going to have a short ad break right now. This is Focus on Our Sages with Rabbi Danny Saxton on 101.9 High FM. So, we interrupted your your message you were sharing with us. <laughs> All right. So, anyway, so it was, I had to go to, you know, the funeral. And I, um, I got there... And the, the body hadn't arrived yet, and I was shocked. As I came through the gates of the cemetery, I saw all the men uh, of the community were all sitting on the ground. These are people who generally worked on farms or in factories. All the men are sitting on the ground, smoking cigarettes, drinking arak. Arak is like uh, uzo, you know, it's a, 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 like a licorice flavor kind of. And when is this? What year is this? 69. 69. And all the men are, sitting, are on the ground, smoking cigarettes, Drinking Arak and and playing Sheshbesh, you know, Sheshbesh, or playing cards. No, they weren't playing, they were playing cards. They were Arak, smoking, and playing cards. Uh, Every sitting there, going, here, they got, they, they, no, 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 the body's not there, got to do no waste time. And uh, that was kind of, that was kind of shocking. And then when the body came, everybody jumped up, and the, the women have a certain chant that they do. It's really actually from a madras, by the way, but they sing Lee Lee Lee, they fear hear them, and they, uh, and, uh, at a funeral, you know, it was a sad thing. And then something happened. Uh, it changed my life in a second, and I never forgot it. I don't think I ever will, with God's help. After the funeral, yeah, there were a number of little children who had lost their father. And I remember as we came to the gates of the cemetery, all of the families in the community converged upon the children. And it was like, I know it's not possible what I'm describing, but it looked as if everyone was holding the children's hands, and everyone was holding them around the shoulders. And I saw like in one second how Jewish people converged on these Jewish children and cared for them. as Not as if they were their own. They were their own. And that moved me beyond anything I can describe to you. And I felt the, I felt 
the love of Jewish people and the love of Jewish people, you know, love for the Jewish people and the love that the Jewish people have. And it, it changed my life in a second. And I, it never, ever, never, ever, um, left me. And, uh, I told you, you know, I worked on a farm. So I worked, I did all kinds. I did, first, I, I, I did the worst job when I first came to the farm. Mm-hmm. Uh, they give you the worst job if you come. So the worst job is, is compost. You know, compost is a, is a chemical. A reaction, you know, you put together, you know, all kinds of junk in it, and manure, and it, it steams. It's it's on fire. Mm-hmm. And I I did it in the in the hottest part of the summer in the Arava, and uh, and what's the Arava? That's south. That's, that's, that's south. The south. Yeah, in the south. And uh, and um, uh, it's it, first of all, it's backbreaking work. You're shoveling all day long, and it, the heat is in those whatever the temperature is outside. You're hotter. Mm-hmm. You know, it, and the smell is is extremely extremely pungent. It doesn't leave you for months and months and months. It doesn't matter. Months after you stop the job, you still smell the you smell the smell. And anyway, I used to so I did I did that for a while until I graduated to other to other job. But I was very strong, thank God, because wow. of it. And it's uh, amazing. Yeah, what a great experience. Yeah. But to leave your family and yeah. to do that with confidence and with joy and with determination, mm. you must have been really driven on the inside. Yeah, I think I think I think I was, but mostly I, it's interesting because I wasn't driven with a specific goal as much as as much as I just knew that there was things there were things that I had to do. As I felt it, I, I went there to show because my soul needed to be there to show. Period. I didn't really I didn't care what was there. I was completely, I was completely. Utterly apolitical, you know. The, so, was the, that a the, conscious yearning that you knew you had to be this? You consciously aware, or you just felt no, strong? I, yeah, I, I felt it. I, I, thought, I felt that I need to be an answer to I felt <laughs> to, to to be fulfilled as a person that I needed to. Uh, and then when you were there, yeah, you, you felt that that was it resonated. Uh, absolutely, it was yeah. Beautiful. I'll tell you a story. I, I um, I mean, I don't know end the story though. Sorry about that, but I, I, I um. In the old, all the yeshiva next Israel were built those days that always the, the fields were on the periphery and the houses were in the center. That was the most secure thing you could do. Any, any danger would have to come through the fields to reach the homes. And, uh, I used to be out in the fields working every day. And, uh, one day I finished and it was sunset and a uh, long day's work. And uh, physical work and farm work is extremely fulfilling. And I happen to love that because I have a, I think I mentioned one time, maybe on this show one time, but I, I, uh, in general, I'm always happy to hire, I'm, I'm actually happier to hire my body out than my mind. And I'll charge much less for the body than I will for the mind. Because if I, if I'm, if, if I'm, my body's working, my mind is free, you know, to think. So I love hiring my body out. I can work and my mind can still think. For my mind, I'm stuck. If I, if I hire my, I want much more money from my, you know, to hire my mind than to hire my body. So I love working on the, you know, the, the farm work is very fulfilling because you can think, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't occupy the mind. It mm-hmm. really occupies the body. And one afternoon we finished working and I was alone, completely alone in the field as the sun was going down. And I actually sat down and the scene was exquisite. I was looking inwards through the fields to the houses and the sun was coming down and uh, I began to cry from the sheer beauty. I was just thankful to God that I was in Eretz Yisrael and it, it was spiritually beautiful. It was physically beautiful. It was emotionally beautiful. And it was one of the most wonderful feelings I've ever had in my life. About a year and a half later, I was full-time, you know, learning Torah and teaching Torah, and I had come 
within about a kilometer and a half of the farm that I had worked on when I first came to Eretz Israel to teach a Gemara seminar. Hmm. Uh, uh, there was a local educational center there. And I came down to teach this uh, Gemara seminar, and I realized, well, I'm only, you know, I'm only about a kilometer and a half, two kilometers away, you know, from the farm, and I have all my good friends there and families that I was close to. I said, I'll go down and visit. So I go down, but of course, everything was wrong. You know, I was wearing the wrong clothes. I had city clothes, I had yeshiva clothes on, and I had a black hat, and uh, city shoes, and you have to walk in, at least, you know, whatever it is, you have to walk a long dirt road just to get in, and everything was wrong. I felt uncomfortable and silly. And then I came to visit a certain family who I was very close to. I was sitting on their back porch, and there I was, in exactly the reverse position that I had been uh, some time before when I when I was younger—not that much younger, a year and a half, two years, whatever it was. But and and now I was on the back porch, looking out at the beautiful fields, and and the sun was setting. It was the same thing, but I was in the wrong direction. And I thought to myself, you know, I am absolutely thrilled and fulfilled to be learning to her and to be teaching to her. It was one that we, we were, it was the most wonderful thing in the world. But I, a little voice inside of me said, but what about music? I always loved music to play it and to know it. And I always loved nature. I said, what about music and what about nature? And it was a real, you know, a real challenge. And of course, since there was nobody else there to answer me, I answered myself. So I said to myself, I said, you know, there's going to be a world to come. I said, if these things are real, if music is real, and if nature is real, they will be, they or facsimile will be in the world to come. If they're real, either they'll be there or there'll be a facsimile. It'll be there. And if they're not there, they were never real to start with. And I'm telling you, even though I was a kid, a tremendous calm came upon me, an inner calm, and it never left me. Hmm. And that formula was simple to me, that if it was real, it was going to be there. And if it wasn't there, it was never real anyway. And, and 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 I just it didn't and you're convinced of that today. Yeah, with all, every, every fiber of my being, that is, I know it's, and that's why you know, you know you don't have to worry about it. You know, if you like it, it'll be. If it, if it's if it if if you have good reason to like it, it'll be there. And if you don't, and if and if it's not going to be there, believe me, you're never going to get anything out of it anyway. And so 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 don't worry about it, which is very important because I was discussing um, uh, last night another in a class. You know that one of the things I laugh about. Is that people who you know people are like, oh you know get you know come here and enjoy yourself in this world? Well, I love I'm nuts about this. I'm I'm embarrassed. I am shamelessly in love with this world. I love the place. It's it's so much fun here. Every everything you look at and think about and see, it's just it's just fun, fun, fun. It's hard to go to sleep. I don't even like going to sleep really because because I don't want to stop having. I have a rule. I I don't, I almost I, I if it's up to me, I really won't stay in a good hotel. Why? Because it's always a waste of money. I got to pay all that money and go to sleep. That's ridiculous. You know, I, I'd rather stay in a cheap hotel. I'm going to sleep anyway. Why should I pay all this money? And if I'm going to be in a good hotel, then I'm not going to sleep. I'm going to stay up and play with the slippers and the bathrobes and the, and the hair dryer. I'm not going to, I'm not going to, I, I, why, should I, why should I go there? And they have, there's, there's a tradition in, you know, Alexander the Great appears in the Gemara under the name Alexander Mokadon, Alexander the Macedonian. So in his time, he was a king who'd conquered really for them what was the, the known world. He was the king of the world. So the, in history, the, the, the uh, tradition 
on Alexander is that uh, the, the, not the secular tradition, but the history of Alexander is that is that he slept very little. So his his uh, serving people weren't shocked. They said, "Listen, you're king of the whole world. You know, traditionally kings, you know, kings get up at ten in the morning. You know, the, you know." He said, "Here's Alexander doesn't sleep." So they said, "You're king of the whole world." He said, "You know, why don't you sleep?" And so in Hebrew, the, the way the tradition comes down, see, the answer was he said, "Chaval al kol regesh malchus." It's a pity to waste one minute of being king. How can he go to sleep and sleep through being a king? He's the king of the world. He's not going to go to sleep. You're not, you're not going to. You're not going to do it. So, so, so anybody with a brain, it's so much funnier. You can't. It's, it's endless. You know, every everything you look at is beautiful. So every every experience, intellectual, emotional, physical, uh, artistic, it's spiritual. There's no end to the fun you can have here. It's unbelievable. So the only thing is, but here's what I think. Ironically, and I, I, I'm telling you, I, I don't know if I'm the world's expert at having fun, but I'm definitely good at it. And I love it. The only thing is, but I say, and I, interesting enough, and you'll, this is the shocker. I say anybody who believes that God created them to take, to, for the purpose of getting pleasure in this world, doesn't appreciate this world. Only a person who doesn't know how to have fun thinks that the reason they're in the world is to have fun. And but a person, a person who knows how to have fun knows that the fun place is not here. It's got to be someplace else. Why is that? I'm, I don't mean it's not fun. Why is that? Because this place is so much fun. It, 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 so here, if you, if this world was an ice cream cone and you look at the pleasure you can get out of this world, well, if a person lives a thousand years, you don't even get a lick. That's not so much fun. Here, here, I'd like to fall in love with every single person in the whole world. Period. Wait, that's not enough. I want to, I want myself of each day to fall in love with every person. No, no, no. I actually want myself of each day to fall in love with every other person in the world every day that they existed. That's, there's, there's no math to do that number, by the way. I want to be, I want all of myself to have, to, to be in love with all the selves of all the people that ever were, will be. Here, you can't even do the math. So I know what, what fun is. You see, you gotta, but, but it's never gonna happen. You, you can barely get a, you get one lick out of this world. So I, so I know that this is just, I, 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 as much as I'm crazy about the place, I know it's not the place. And that's what gives a person uh, uh, tranquility. Because if you were gonna, if you would try it, uh, you could run. You know, what, uh, what are you gonna do? You, 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 how many, how many, how many? Here, how many, how many smiles are you gonna see in your life? You know, said how many, how many? Uh, you could try. You can try, but you're not even gonna scratch the surface of the of the wonder, you know, of this universe. One of my kids' kids, she says to her mother, she says, "Mommy, she says, you know, if God gave us four eyes." Then when two of them were sleeping, the other two could be doing something else. You know, now I feel like that. What do you mean? Four eyes, a thousand eyes. You know, one pair of eyes could be skiing. One pair of eyes could be studying. One pair of eyes could be laughing. One pair. There's no end. There's no end to, to, to the to the things. And I'm convinced. And I've said this many times in my classes that people the, the people live. A length of time dependent upon the richness of their experience. I think there are people who lived 90 years who lived, who lived a thousand years or 10,000 years because they were so, their experience was so rich. Right. They're living 10, and there are people who live, there are people who live a hundred years and then live six. Is that because they're barely here? They're not, they're not, they're not sure. absorbing. Sure. Yeah. When somebody approaches you and asks you, what convinces you that there's a God and that there's a soul and that there's eternity? Okay, so that's a very important question and it's something that everybody should think about. And any person who believes in God and hasn't thought about it is, has a problem. <laughs> so the answer is like this. First of all, and pardon, you know, my apologies to all the good people who write these books, but there's no such thing as a proof of God. It's impossible. It's, it's absolutely impossible. Why? Because the subject of the proof 
has no has no quality by definition since God is not anything that's created. It's not anywhere. It doesn't occupy space or time. Has no duration. Has nothing. There's no quality of the thing that we call God by definition. Because if it had those qualities, it wouldn't be God. So that it's by definition not subject to any proof that any intelligent person could do. And I'm sorry. I and I I with all my heart, every fiber of my being, knows that there's a God. Every fiber of my being. But I say to you, there's no such thing as a proof of God. So then, one second. So then, how do we do it? How, do, how, how does a God-fearing person? How does a person believe in God? So I'm going to answer you. And there is there is a, a clear and very pure logic to this, and that is the following. It's actually, believe it or not, actually, um, well, you'll, you'll see. I'll explain in one second. You'll see that human beings do not believe things merely by empirical proof. It's not true. You'll see that every day you, I, and everybody, you know, all intelligent people function on the basis of other things besides, besides airtight mathematical proof. For example, status quo is one thing, propensities and status quo, numerical statistical majorities, and testimony. For example, uh, almost every society in the world, and believe me, two people can lie, but but almost every society in the world, in order to determine truth, will we'll bring witnesses. We do our best to test the veracity. We kind of get honest people. People haven't cheated or stolen the Torah. Anybody, anybody who ever stole money could never be a witness in a Jewish court. We, we, uh, once they're not trustworthy for the money, they're not trustworthy for the mouth because you can hire them. Yeah, but, 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 but in theory, mathematically, you can have a billion witnesses. You don't know that it happened. If a trillion people testify that something happened, you don't know that it happened. It just becomes very unlikely. It's hard to pull. Why, why we, I'll, I'll try and explain this quickly. You'll see. It's, it's a simple thought, but I'll explain everything. So why is that? For example, why are people make, why do people make fun of conspiracy theorists? Couldn't there be a conspiracy? Well, the answer is that there's a certain logic that works against, a, a propensity that works against conspiracy theories. Why? For example, I don't know if you know, in the United States, there are people who believe when I was a kid, the United States uh, landed on the moon. Now, there's a whole group of people who believe that the whole thing was fake, that was done in a television studio, and there was never any moon landing. Okay, look, that could be today with the robotic technology, even then, you could pull it off. But why, why are we unlikely to believe that that happened? I'll tell you why. Because in order, in order to pull off a national hoax, where, 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 where millions upon millions of people are fooled into believing that astronauts who never were in their spaceship went to a place that never was, never got to the moon, and never put up the flag, you'd have to have at least a few thousand people involved in that hoax. It's unlikely that you got a couple thousand people without one of them leaking, without one of them fucking, no, nobody. So that's why, why are we skeptical? Yeah, same thing, you know, one of the famous arguments for the truth of the Torah, you know, if there were 600,000 men of army age, which means several million, maybe up to five million, at least people in the desert, here, Moses, Moses comes out and talks about the Torah, nobody for, for centuries says, he's a liar, he made it up. Why? So it's it could have you're right it could have it could have been a conspiracy but very unlikely so one thing so we have certain things that are propensities we understand we come on it's hard to believe that a thousand people went on on this on this trick and didn't do it a second so testimony so testimony of, at a certain point testimony is very reasonable it doesn't prove anything but it's very reasonable to, to rely on it we, uh, also also statistical majorities once ninety nine percent to ninety eight percent. Uh, of cases come out a certain way, it's very likely that your case came out. Now, your, 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 the answer is your case could be the exception. That's why you don't play Russian roulette. <laughs> You're right. Even if there are a thousand chambers in a, in a, in a, in a, in a revolver, you don't want to put it to your head because, because today might be the day that the one, that the one chamber of the bullet comes up. So we don't do it. But the truth is that the odds are very much on your side. We tend to, we, we, and we tend to nullify a, a, a minimal 
Oh, I think that's the second one. A third one is this. We'll yeah. come back with okay, the third sorry, one in a moment. Thank you. Sorry, just thanks so much. Okay. <laughs> This is Focus on Our Sages with Rabbi Danny Saxton on 101.9 High FM. We're very fortunate today to have Rabbi Shimon Green with us um, on the show. Rabbi Green's explaining the logical aspect of uh, being a believing Jew and having an understanding that a God exists. So please carry on. Okay, so the third thing that we do, that's not, that is not mathematically conclusive, but essentially all intelligent human beings do, is not to deny the workings of the mind. Okay, and this is actually, I'm sure many are familiar, if not, I really recommend everyone should read uh, the, uh, an essay by, by Rene Descartes called Discourse on Method. It's actually a much larger, that's the short name, Discourse on Method. And that is essentially that there's a point where uh, 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 unless a person is crazy, they do not deny the workings of the mind. And I'm going to explain that. All human minds, we're hardwired. We, I, you may not like it, and I didn't like it when I was a kid when I figured it out, you understand? But somebody was in my head before I got there. I, I didn't like it, but that's the facts. You can stand on your head, you're not going to, unless you lose your mind, your brain was hardwired and it works a certain way, you're not going to stop it. We call people insane who don't do it, you know, who don't, who don't and we call people sane who do, because that's what, that's what everybody's mind does. Now, one of the things that the, that the, the human mind does is, is that it has a three-step process. The human mind automatically attributes intention to order. If the human mind sees order, it assumes intent. When it sees intent, it assumes purpose. And you can't escape it. Here, you've heard of Stonehenge. Uh, so, Okay, first, there are a lot of places, you know, there are many, many places like Stonehenge throughout the, throughout the England and, and the Scotland. But when, the, when people saw Stonehenge, saw these massive rocks in the circle, and you know, it's a tremendous, it's a solar clock, a solar calculator, etc. Nobody said, oh wow, look at those dumb rocks, they all got up there. How they get there? Wow, they just, but they just got up there by themselves. Nobody. Nobody said those rocks got there by themselves. They said, wow, people put those rocks there. There was a purpose. What happened? You see order here in the Middle East. I don't, I don't know if today in modern world, but when I was, when I was 17 in the Middle East, you marked a field with three rocks. The, 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 the borders of a field, the corners of a person's property were marked with, now there was three rocks. Wow, look at those three rocks. They just found it again. Nobody, nobody thinks that. If I bring a person into this room, I said, I find, and I find tiles on the floor. I'm not, I'm not going to convince one person in a thousand that two stupid rocks got together by themselves on the floor, two tiles. Yeah, I can't do it. Yet many people of that same thousand will will say that they believe that the human eye of all things is is the result of not one but a series of millions of fortuitous accidents. And you call it selection, but it's not my point. We naturally, when we see order, we naturally assume intent. So there's a famous and you'll see what I'm saying. So there's a famous Which is logical. That's a logical deduction. Yes. You can you can mathematically you can challenge it, but the facts are we do the and I'll show you that every intelligent person does it. God hope please I hope this never happens to anybody. But a person comes home one day, they come into the house, oh my goodness, the door is not only ajar, it's hanging off the hinges. They come in, the drawers are all emptied out on the floors. A person runs to the safe, the safe is, is has clearly been blown out of the wall and is empty. The person grabs the telephone. Hello, police, I've been robbed, come quickly. Now you get a philosopher on the other side. And it says, one second now, just slow down. What did they look like? I, I didn't see them, they're not here anymore. I said, one minute, you didn't see them? No. Well, how do you know you were robbed? Are you nuts? 
The place is upside down. My safe been blown. Yeah, but if you didn't see them, you don't actually know that anyone was there. Dude, give me the captain. You nut. You you would never you would put up with that. Now why is that? Because 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 the mind when the, when it sees certain things assumes assume when we see order we assume that the, we assume, we assume that there is an actor. That's a famous mantra most people people don't access. A, a certain person said to Rabbi Kiva. He said, he said, here, show me there's a creator. Rabbi Akiva said, who made your cloak? Who made your garment? So the person said, the weaver. Rabbi Akiva said, this, just as the cloak attests to the weaver, so does the world attest to the creator. Now you notice he didn't say, as the, as the coat proves that there's a weaver, the world proves that there's a God. He said, just as the coat testifies that there's a weaver, so does the world testify that there's a God. Testimony is not mathematical proof, but it's reasonable. You're right. Testimony is we as weak as strong or weak as the witnesses, that's how strong we accept it. But testimony is still a very reasonable thing. Now when we see order, we have a testimony, not a mathematical proof, but we said so, so wait a second. Something something did something purposely did something. We don't find order without it. In no place. You don't do it. You you're right. It could have happened, but you don't come on. You, you don't believe that? Here, you know, if I put a thousand monkeys with, with a thousand word processors in a room, can they come up with the works of William Shakespeare? Absolutely! Well, ab- of course, yes. You're an idiot not to know that. Of course they can do it. I wouldn't hold my breath waiting. You know what I'm saying? After the first five million years, you know, you're just, just trying to get the title. Hamlet, 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 Hamlet. After five million years, Hamlet. Then by after another fifty million years, William another fifty million. Yeah, you know, yeah, you know, okay, it could happen. You know, so I said I wouldn't hang around waiting, but it could happen. But so then why why don't I make those assumptions? Because that's not the my brain was built this way. And nobody comes home and sees the safe below the wall is going to put up with the, with the sergeant telling them that they're delusional for thinking that their house was robbed. So the thing over here, once I once I see that I've I've plumbed the depths of my soul. I did this. I don't care. I'm not. I only want the truth. I've, I've plumbed the depths of my soul. My brain will not work any other way. And the only way I'm not going to do is if you change the workings of the brain. I lose my mind, but I haven't lost my mind. So I, I, I see order. I know there's. An, I know. I know something did. Now there's a second thing which is frightening, and that is also that once you know that we, in our world. Intention implies purpose. So that, so then a person really seeking what's, what's the worst. So that's why, that's why I tell people come upon the, and that's why ironically, this is shocking. That's why even when a person, a person was born and knew nothing about, knew nothing about Judaism or the Torah, and a person converts to Judaism, they still have to do Teshuva, they still have to repent. Why? Well, the person didn't know that there's, that there's a Torah, there's Judaism. Because, because the human being was built for these things to occur, and the person has to repent for not having done it earlier. Because because we're built this way, we were built to do. We were built to do. So the answer, the simple answer is, we do not prove the existence of God, but the brain demands the existence of God. And I admit it, I'm hardwired. But here, I haven't I haven't quit my brain. I, I we invest our money this way. We do medicine this way. We go shopping this way. There's nothing we don't do this way. All of a sudden now, in this one for this one question of this God, look now all of a sudden I'm a math I'm a mathematician. I would appear. Stop it! You're not honest. You're 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 not an honest person. And I tell my students, I don't believe in people. Don't believe in God. I don't believe in people who don't believe in God. I, I you pardon me with, with love and respect. They're, they're either not well, and I say that with the greatest love. They're brainwashed. They, they're not thinking, or, or, or they're not telling the truth. Or they're not telling the truth. I don't believe it because 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 the mind will not go there. That's my humble opinion. Okay, wow, so very <laughs> very powerful, formidable argument that you put forward. Thank you so much for sharing it. You stay with us. We'll be back in a moment. This is Focus on Our Sages with Rabbi Danny Saxton on 101.9 High FM.
so fortunate to have with us Rabbi Shimon Green. It's been a great honor and privilege to um, share the program with him and to have him on the show. And please, God, we'll have another opportunity next week to do so. There were so many things I wanted to discuss with Rabbi Green. He's just so fascinating and has such a great knowledge that uh, it's so easy just to speak about one topic and to cover many beautiful angles of that topic, which we've just done. There's just one final question that we'll end with, which I wanted to ask Rabbi Green. Rabbi Green is a very talented musician, and he's recorded four albums. And uh, so maybe you can share with us your love for music, what it does for you, and how it's uh, been able to reach many people. Okay. I, You know, it's very hard to know what music does. But we all know, I think almost everybody knows, that somehow music reaches a part of us that's profound. Uh, music reaches places of profound joy, of sadness, uh, beauty, of humor. Music seems to be able to do everything. We even have, you know, even music can make you laugh. It does all kinds of things like that. I heard my first uh, recorded song when I was four years old, and I was transported by it. And uh, I grew up in the United States, so <laughs> we, we had the radio. But <laughs> I'll date myself here. When I was a little kid, radios had vacuum tubes in them. Was, I was, I was, I, the transistor was was brought out as I was growing up. So radios had vacuum tubes. So my brother and I used to sleep with the radio in the bed, but radios got hot. We used to have welts on our bodies from being burnt by the radio. We used to play the radio all night and all day, and the music would get into our music would get into our subconscious, you know. And um, we loved it. We loved it, and we we didn't uh, we 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 wanted to play music. We didn't have any, we didn't have instruments, so we used to go to the nearby school, the, the uh, and uh, we used to play the piano together. And we would play four hands and sing. We would play till we cried, that's the truth. And uh, we just there was something that we knew was 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 beautiful uh, about music. And eventually, you know, we uh, we found a way to you know we learned how to play a little piano, a little guitar, a little this and that, and we went forward. But I'll tell you an interesting story. There's a and this I do, I can only tell you what he says. I actually don't know the structure of the lesson. Uh, but I have to look into it. But there was a great rabbi named. Uh, um, uh, Rav Nassim Tzvi Finkel. He was known as the altar of uh, Slabatka. He was the Rosh Hashiva, the elder of Slabatka. And uh, the old one of Slabatka. And in one of his articles, he essentially he essentially says, if you look, we say on Friday nights, we say a psalm. It says, Mizmor Shir Liyom HaShabbos. This is a psalm, uh, a song to the day of Shabbos. It says, Tov Lehodos Hashem. So you could say it's good to give thanks to God or it's good to confess uh, to God. Ulezamer, and to sing you know your lofty name so it's interesting if you notice there's song confession and song and we know that 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 our our great 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 whatever the number is you know grandparents Adam and Eve were created on Friday afternoon and then they did wrong on Friday afternoon uh, and they did teshuva and that all happened as Shabbos as the first Shabbos came in so he says what happened was at the moment that the first Sabbath came in there was song, confession, shuva, and song again. And all those things happened together. And he says that, he says that music, uh, it, it, what happened with Unrishan, the reason why music and Shabbos all came together, because he saw the underlying structure of creation. That's what he says. We have to see where he knows these things from. Uh, honestly, I, I have, you know, those books, he didn't write, the, he didn't write those books. So it has to be looked into. Um, students wrote the things down, but he didn't write them. 
So, but the thing is, whatever whatever his uh, basis is, it's clear that we see that music can do something. But I want to tell you something interesting, and this I'll, I'll, I'll have time to tell you. You have to be careful because music is powerful, and it and it doesn't matter who is doing the playing. It's powerful, or the singing. It's powerful for everyone. When I came to Israel, there were very few radio stations, and it was common to listen to the BBC World Service in Israel. And uh, the BBC had a show that used to come on. It was called Jazz for the Asking. And jazz, they only played masterpieces of jazz. I'm not the greatest jazz fan, but they played masterpieces. And one time they played a masterpiece of jazz, and I was listening to it, and all of a sudden I was transported to Harlem, and I could see the heat coming off of the streets, and the, uh, the you know, the, not a pleasant, wasn't those years, not a pleasant place. And I thought, thought to myself, wow, he, he transported me right here to Harlem. And I said, yeah, but do I want to be here? And, I said, and what I realized was, and the first time I ever heard Richard Wagner, I didn't know it was Richard Wagner. And I, and I was appalled by the music. But I was stunned by its brilliance. And afterwards, I was ashamed at being so impressed with, with, with the music of a wicked person. And there are wicked themes in that music, by the way. Really cruel. Cruel themes in the I, I, We can debate, but I, I feel I can hear those things. But the point is like this. Music affects you. And if the person who's, who's doing the affecting is a good person, they're going to they're gonna communicate beautiful, good things. And when they're bad people, the power of music will communicate bad things. That's the point. You have to realize. So, so you have to watch out. And even some people who, who, who look good are really singing about their own egos or other things like that. And you don't want to listen to that music because you're just being affected by ego, even if they're singing, singing uh, Jewish things. Right, right. Yeah. The, the right. singer or the musician is going to communicate what they're communicating. Right. The music is just a vehicle, so I think it's just very important, though. It's powerful, and you have to watch out who's behind it. Well, that's a very profound point. <laughs> Thank you so much. It's really been wonderful to have Rabbi Green with us today. We hope, please God, in the future, we can continue speaking to Rabbi Green, learning from his experiences and from his wisdom, and from his tremendous Torah knowledge. Thank you so much for listening, and have a wonderful day.